Greetings, and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive Podcast features Gary Giroux, the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles. Gary is a good friend, and I'm delighted to have him on the show. Gary, thanks so much for joining me today for the Net Positive Podcast. How are you doing? Great. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy and I really value your perspectives. And I, as I was preparing for this podcast and looking at your bio, uh, which is extensive, um, I, I, I was shocked that you've been at, with the county now as a sustainability officer for five years. It's, time really does fly, doesn't it? It, it really does fly. If I, I didn't, uh, when I took the job, I didn't think I would last five years, quite honestly, because I had some very ambitious things and I figured they would get rid of me uh, as soon as I started saying we're going to phase out fossil fuels in the county. But they've kept me, so it's great. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed. And as I, I think back, I mean, you, you, you live and breathe this, but I know you got the greenhouse gas inventory done for the county. I, I know you launched the Clean Power Alliance, uh, which was major and is going very, very strong as we speak. And, and then I, you did the Our County Sustainability Plan a couple of years ago, which is an incredible document, I think. And now, and now this new climate vulnerability assessment that we want to talk about today. Yeah, but, yeah. All of those things are things we're proud of. Uh, the Clean Power Alliance is, is great. And in fact, uh, I, I'm excited to say that uh, I expect that next week, I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, next week, the Board of Supervisors is going to vote to have the unincorporated parts of LA County, all 1 million people get 100% renewable energy as the default energy product. Wow. So that's going to be bumping, bumping that up and taking how many, how many metric tons out of our footprint? Do we know? Oh, it's going to, it's probably from our 2015 inventory. It's, it's, a, it's an immediate 10% reduction. So just in one fell swoop, we'll reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 10%. That's, that's, that's really awesome. So, and then let's go back in your, in your career, just really quickly. I know you've been very involved in a volunteer basis with the California League of Conservation Voters. That's a big part of your life, I know. The, the LA League of Conservation Voters, so it's the local chapter. Gotcha. And before that, well, the Climate Action Reserve was concurrent. You were president of the Climate Action Reserve for seven or eight years. And before that, uh, LADWP, Director of Energy Efficiency, a job that I had before you. <laughs> yes, you, 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 you had big shoes that I was not able to fully fill, but it was, it was good to work with you back then. And then we met, I, I look back, I think we met in 1998. I had just come to LADWP and you were the director, or the assistant GM of uh, EAD, Environmental Affairs Department under Lillian Kawasaki. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, was it I that long ago? 98. Wow. <laughs> I, had, I had traveled to Japan with Lillian before that. But let's let's dive into the vulnerability assessment. And I know this was one of the one of the mandates that came out of the county sustainability plan was to do a vulnerability assessment. But when you think about that, Gary, I mean, what's the what's the fundamental methodology? How do you start out? Yeah, well, you know, I think and, and it's really it's not just how we do it, but why we do it. And, and it really is to help inform the county's response to changing climate and how do we protect uh, the populations. But the, the process, the methodology, 
uh, is we take uh, climate models, uh, though that are used by the state of California in this case for the statewide climate climate assessment, um, and downscale those to the local level. And, and UCLA has done a lot of this work uh, on downscaling sort of global climate models or, or, or state or national climate models to a local level. So we didn't have to reinvent that piece, but we were able to look at five climate hazards, uh, wildfire, heat, uh, inland flooding due to extreme precipitation, sea level rise, and drought. And, and they look at that at a, at a census tract scale. And that, you know, that was critical because people need to understand what, uh, what are the impacts likely to be in their neighborhoods. But the unique thing we did was then we, usually when, when a climate vulnerability assessment is done, it's usually looking at the physical vulnerability. So, you know, how, how are these things going to affect our energy system or our transportation system uh, our hospitals, other critical infrastructure. But we, we were, and we have been to, from the beginning driven by a very human-centric approach to sustainability. Uh, our primary interest, and, and it's a little bit unique just to go back and talk about the role of the county. The county is the health and uh, human services agency for the region. You know, we provide the, the food stamps and the, and the uh, unemployment benefits and a whole range of social safety net features. We also are the public health department and run the hospitals. Uh, we're the hospitals of, of last resort for, for indigent people. Uh, so the county took a very human-centric approach to sustainability and to the climate vulnerability assessment. So we looked at 29 separate uh, social factors um, in those census tracts. So you could say in this census tract, we know it's going to get hot. We also know that there's a lot of older adults in that census tract, or there's a lot of mobile homes or a lot of people who don't have uh, access to uh, transportation or who don't, you know, who don't have English as a, as a primary language. So that was really the unique piece is sort of marrying social uh, sensitivity factors against the, the climate impacts themselves. Uh, and then we were able to, because of that, we were able to identify uh, not only where we're going to see changes, but what populations are most likely to be impacted and how. I thought it was so fascinating uh, thumbing through the report, um, looking at place like Westlake Village that might experience this inland flooding that we talked about from the sort of extreme precipitation or extreme bursts of precipitation. And then comparing that with these so social factors, I guess one of them was like in, incomplete uh, internet coverage. And therefore, there would be a lack of emergency warning or capability for emergency warning. In another community, uh, the emergency warnings were in English and the community was speaking Spanish. And in Santa Clarita, there was lots of senior people that uh, then, but there was not a whole lot of transit to get people out of their homes in the event of what they needed help. So a fascinating cross uh, examination of all these factors. And then I mean, as it says in the report, stark detail. I mean, it sort of lays bare these social and these ongoing racial policies and practices. I mean, you got you you got pretty deep. Were the findings what you expected? That uh, the lower income people, the people of color, the ones who typically have lived on the other side of the tracks, uh, are are bearing the brunt of this, or did you find some unexpected aspects? Yeah, you know, I think we. We understood 
perhaps, uh, you know, without the solid analytical framework that uh, communities of color would likely be the ones that suffered the most from, from climate impacts. And that, that's sort of a, an extension of the fact that communities of color have typically suffered the brunt of, of air pollution, you know, toxic, poor water quality, the whole range of environmental issues. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily surprising to us, uh, but what this did was really give that, that uh, the gravitas of a, of a, of a formal uh, scientific technical assessment to, to point out exactly where that's likely to happen. Um, but there were things even, you know, even, you know, we're in the field, so to speak, and, and understand these things. There are still things that surprised us with the study. Um, you know, I think one of the things we haven't talked about yet, but was uh, the third component of the study, which was this sort of cascading impacts analysis. So we looked at what happened, how, how infrastructure is interrelated uh, and how impacts to one part of the system affect other parts of the system. And the thing that really came out of that that, that we hadn't expected uh, was the criticality of actually the workforce that connects those things. The people who work in communications, in transportation, in public health, in energy, really are the, are the glue that holds that sort of infrastructure system together. And I guess that shouldn't have surprised us coming you know, through the pandemic and hearing and seeing the importance of essential workers. But we hadn't married that concept of essential workers to climate change and the impacts of climate change on our communities. Uh, so that was, I think, um, surprising. The other thing I think that really you know, we we knew that there were big risks, but when when you when you actually put it down on paper and say we're going to have a tenfold increase in extreme heat waves, that we're going to go from uh, having an, an extreme heat wave is four plus days at the 98th percentile. So uh, a little complicated to describe the 98th percentile, but basically it means you take the hottest six days of the year and you say, okay, how much are those going to change? Uh, right now we have an, a, a really severe heat wave in, in Los Angeles about every other year. Uh, and we're projecting that we're going to have four of those a year. So that's, that's an eight to 10% increase. And, and that means that the population that's actually vulnerable is going to go from 1.2 million people today to 2.2 million people by mid-century. No, those are big numbers, uh, and that's a, and heat is a killer. We know that heat is, in fact, um, responsible for more deaths than any other weather-related phenomena in the country, uh, more than more than tornadoes and hurricanes, uh, all of those things. Uh, but it just doesn't get counted the same way. You don't you don't get you know news reports saying during this heat wave real time how many people die but it is when you have that many people who are going to be exposed to that kind of heat we're gonna we're gonna see a lot more uh, a lot more uh, mortality and morbidity well the la times article that in which you're quoted and they're they're, they're discussing this climate vulnerability assessment report uh, comes somebody comes it was quoted as saying well you know landlords are required to provide heat in their apartments in their homes that they're renting out but not not air conditioning Right. 
I mean, so we have a real mismatch here um, and a real in, in, intense vulnerability. You were, you were also quoted, or I guess maybe in the, in the intro to one of the reports you wrote, uh, this is all frightening, but not inevitable. Um, right, right. And I, I think that's perfect. a critical point that we have, to, we have to make is that when you do this kind of analysis, you're doing it for the purposes of uh, planning. So the government can start to say, where do we need to put resources? How do we need to respond to these, these potential impacts? And you do that essentially in a worst case scenario. So what, what this is, is RCP 8.5, which is Representative Concentration Portfolio 8.5, which is a sort of a scientific term for what if we don't really do a whole lot to mitigate the greenhouse gases that are going into the atmosphere? Um, what are the impacts at mid-century? And you know, we could have taken a more moderate approach to the modeling, but from a planning standpoint, you want to know what the worst is so you can plan for the worst and you hope you don't get there. And so what that means is that we still have a chance. Um, very much so to, to change this. And it doesn't have to be this bad that if, if we locally and collectively, you know, in California and the United States and globally really do start to bend that curve, we're not going to see impacts to this extreme level. Uh, and, you know, it, it, people think, oh, it's such a big problem and you're never going to solve it. But the fact is you don't need to, there's no solving it exactly. There's, there's ameliorating it, if you will. And if we, you know, if, if the IPCC tells us that we're at, uh, I don't know, 1.8 degrees, and we're able to bend the curve to get that to 1.6 degrees above uh, uh, pre-industrial levels, that will save millions of lives across the globe. And so every, every tenth of a degree that we can shave off whatever peak warming is, is millions of lives. And that's why we do the work we do. Right. And I thought that's very well put. And I thought your statement that uh, disasters can happen in seconds and then disasters can also happen over decades was really uh, another, I think, important message coming out of the report that, uh, yes, we, we are part of a very long continuum here that's been going on that needs to be, as you said, the curve needs to be bent on something that's been brewing for a long, long time. Uh, yeah, yeah, so and I, I have to, I have to give credit to my communications director because he came up with that line. Uh, so I can't take credit for having uh, invented the fact that disasters occur over decades. But it really comes out of what uh, environmental justice movement has been saying for a long time: that environmental pollution is slow violence against communities of color. Uh, you know, there, there's fast violence, of course, right? There's, there's the violence of everyday life. Um, but environmental pollution is slow violence. And, and that's not quite as catchy as disasters occurring over seconds and, and or decades. So uh, I'll give credit to the communications director for, for um, coming up with that. But it's the same concept. Uh, the, this is slow violence that we're per perpetrating on our, our society, on our communities. Um, and we need to we need to slow slow the slow violence down. Let, let's talk uh, briefly about each of those five vulnerabilities. And we've already talked about the extreme heat, which I think is the most, like you said, is the most uh, intense. Uh, and then we have and then we have wildfires. And uh, like you were talking about the cascading impacts or the criticality, I, I, I was interested in you know you really have a big focus on evacuation routes. It's not just uh, the event itself, but how do you how do you deal with that? 
we've got a tremendous amount of our of our county that's in mountainous regions uh, and then all, often very dry regions up in the northern part of the county. Talk about wildfires for a second. Yeah, no, I think, you know, wildfire is the one that in California in particular tends to get uh, most of the attention because they are getting more frequent and bigger. We've seen some of the biggest wildfires ever in the state of California, actually in the country, uh, just in the last few years. They, they tend to become much longer lasting, uh, much more impactful events than, than they used to be. Um, but, you know, wildfire not only directly affects the people who live in, in what's called the urban wildland interface, uh, which is a large part of the county population, as you point out, there are, it's a mountainous region and there are people in foothills uh, all through the San Gabriel Valley and, and elsewhere. But it's also, there's, there's side effects of wildfire impacts that we, of course, poor air quality is the most obvious one. When there's a wildfire, uh, the smoke is very, very damaging to, to human health, particularly to, to young lungs, uh, developing you know, uh, children uh, could, be, it could really be significant. The other, and this is where we, um, you know, we, this is a very quantitative assessment, but we also wanted to, to gather kind of real world, which you'll call qualitative information. And, and we talked, we talked to a lot of uh, different kinds of stakeholders, one of which was uh, people who represent uh, outdoor workers or domestic workers in some cases. And, you know, what was interesting was uh, if you think about areas like Topanga Canyon, Malibu Canyon, uh, there are there is a large domestic workforce, and that domestic workforce frequently gets to those jobs uh, by public transportation. And in a wildfire, public transportation may not be available. And we've we heard stories of people who had to evacuate on foot, and then uh, to add insult to the to the injury were racially profiled by the police as they were coming out of the mountains. Uh, and so, uh, you know, even a, an issue like wildfire where you don't think there's necessarily an equity uh, uh, impact, there, there is. Uh, we heard the story of, of, a, of a landscaper works uh, in, in the mountains and whose employer paid him $700 to stay behind while they evacuated with a garden host so that he could protect their home. Uh, you know, those, those are the kinds of things that, that wildfire, uh, the kinds of impacts that it can have beyond the obvious destruction of the fire itself. Uh, so there really are sort of a multitude or a cascading impact from, from fire. Yeah, so very disheartening to hear that story about the garden hose. And then the, the coastal flooding is perhaps just the, the opposite of that, that the fires are big and, and flashy and everybody knows about it and they make this huge impact and it's all very immediate and in our face. Whereas the coastal flooding, sea level rise is this much longer phenomenon. I think the report said about three quarters of a million people are potentially at risk of coastal flooding. Yeah. And, you know, you don't really think about coastal flooding having sort of uh, inland impacts, but some low-lying areas, particularly Long Beach, uh, you think about uh, the communities in Long Beach, uh, in, in and around Long Beach, like Wilmington or Signal Hill, 
uh, and even parts of North Long Beach are, are also very low income communities and communities of color and, and sea level rise can actually can extend in, inland to a degree. So there are definitely people at risks uh, uh, of that. But, you know, there's also a lot of, and this is probably the one where the infrastructure is really most impacted because there's a lot of coastal infrastructure, our ports, our airports, uh, water systems, energy power plants, you name it. We've put those things along the coast for historic reasons. And a lot of that could be at risk as well. Uh, and when, you know, when the power goes out, people who depend on electricity for medical equipment are, are at risk as well. So there's, there's always this sort of cascading impact. Uh, and when the sea level rises uh, and affects a power plant, it, it, can, it can cause those kinds of effects. And then, and then we start dealing with the inland flooding and then we get mudslides and landslides and... Uh... I started yeah. getting depressed when I got started. <laughs> no, it's easy. It's easy to get depressed. And and actually, we didn't. Uh, we we just saw. I just saw yesterday the state of California put out a study about coastal flooding, uh, and identified some 400 toxic sites that uh, could be uh, uh, exposed to to coastal flooding uh, due to sea level rise. Again, those toxic sites are in places like Oxnard and Wilmington. Uh, where we have low-income communities and, and communities of color. So uh, sea level rise and coastal flooding isn't just, uh, you know, the rich folks who live by the beach issue. It, it really affects uh, across our society. And then, and then drought as well. Are, are, are there areas that are more impacted by drought than others? Yeah, drought was, was one where, um, you know, the impacts of drought are, of course, consistent throughout the county. Uh, all areas of the county will suffer from drought equally. But what, what, what the report did point out was that places like Northern County up in the Lancaster Palmdale area that are already dry and dusty, uh, people, the air, you know, they're under a separate air district than the South Coast, they're under the Mojave uh, air district. And the biggest pollutant, uh, or one of the most significant sources of air pollution in, in, in the North County is just dust. Uh, and if we're going to see a lot more drought, we're going to see a lot more dust. We also have an issue in, in Northern Los Angeles County of what's called valley fever, which are microspores that are in the soil. Uh, and it can cause serious chronic long-term uh, lung problems. And uh, if we're going to experience, and, and we are, what we are projecting is that we will, we're going to ex experience more off drought, longer, uh, uh, more severe droughts, more likely to see um, the, the perturbation of the soil that will lead to not only dust impacts, but valley fever impacts in, in North County. Very, very interesting. And not, not to make light of that, but when you first mentioned valley fever, I thought of Frank Zappa. <laughs> yeah, well, we could all just go to Licorice Pizza and pick up a pick up an LP. <laughs> Gary, then, then uh, I, you know, the end of your vulnerability assessment is, is sort of what should local governments do, and I think you've already said that pretty pretty cl clearly, and that is to plan and to brace for the worst, plan for the worst, and and uh, take action so that we never we never get to that point. 
But that's uh, that, that's pretty much where this assessment drops off. There aren't any solutions per se. Yeah, right? and that that was by design. We, you know, we wanted the assessment to stand alone so that it could help inform other programs, policies, and plans. And it and it already is doing that. The county, our our regional uh, planning department has put out uh, an update of the the public safety element of the general plan. That public safety element took the findings of this vulnerability assessment to, to design, devise strategies to address these impacts. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know we're not we're not thinking about how do we mitigate the risks, and uh, we're we're working hard on things like uh, building uh, resilience hubs, uh, which is going to be uh, you know places within our communities that people can go during a, a climate emergency where they'll have power and water and Wi-Fi access and all the things they need. We're also looking at, uh, of course, we're taking a lot of action to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions, including, uh, as I mentioned at the, at the top, the moving to 100% renewable energy. But there's a, there's a lot of money coming down both from the state of California and the federal government uh, in, the, in the infrastructure bill for climate resilience. And we're going to be building up tree canopies and uh, hopefully building more parks and uh, having light colored pavements uh, and uh, light colored roofing. Uh, so there's a whole host of uh, actions that we can and, and will be taking in response to this assessment. But the assessment was really meant to, to stand alone and, and not venture into the policy realm because we wanted it to be a, a technical document that informs other other actions. It's very well done. And and uh, who deserves some credit for, for putting that together? Well, yeah, we, we had a great uh, um, consulting team led by Bureau Happold Engineering. Uh, we're really happy with them. Uh, they worked with Climate Resolve. You're familiar with Climate Resolve. Uh, you've interviewed Jonathan Parfey, the executive director. Uh, and it was Natalie Hernandez at, at Climate Resolve who led a lot of our stakeholder outreach and engagement. So certainly they deserve credit. Uh, but, you know, this was a, a team effort from my team. We, I have a small uh, organization, as you may know. I, I've got five staff in, in the Chief Sustainability Office, and they tend to be reasonably specialized, whether water or, or public health. Um, or, or air quality expertise or transportation. But in this one, we all came together. We all read every page of every, you know, every draft and, and marked it up and commented. Uh, over, we're probably the worst nightmare for a consulting team because we had a client that had five reviewers rather than one. <laughs> well, you done, you all done, you all done good. And before I let you go, um, how do you keep a balance in your work how do you maintain your work-life balance? I know that you have done a lot of surfing in your life. <laughs> you love to run and drink wine. And how would you answer that question? How are you maintaining a balance? Yeah, you know, I think it is, it is easy to, as a practitioner, and you've been in this field for a long time too. Uh, and as you said, when you're reading through the report, it's, it's easy to get a little pessimistic. But, you know, you also think about how much progress we've made. And, and certainly, you know, uh, probably better than anybody, just how rapidly renewable energy has, has taken off and how affordable that technology has become uh, and, and ubiquitous. 
Uh, and we see the same thing now with electric vehicles really starting to, to be at the beginning of that, that rapid acceleration. So, you know, looking over a long career, I wrote a climate action plan for the city of Los Angeles 20 something years ago. Um, and I've been going to COP since COP8 or something in Milan, you can actually see progress and you can see that we are having an impact. And certainly here in California, we see that with the way our renewable portfolio standards, our energy efficiency standards and all the other actions that we've taken have, have actually led to benefits. And we know, as I said, every time we do that, we're actually uh, helping reduce the, you know, save lives, reduce uh, illness. Uh, and it may not be apparent to us, we're, we're doing, we, we ha but we have to rely on the knowledge that when we reduce both greenhouse gas and criteria air pollutant emissions, we're, we're, we're doing the, the right things for our, for our communities. Super, super well put. Thank you for that. And thank you for what your, your leadership, because I think another uh, huge benefit of, of the works that have taken place here in California is that people all over the world are looking towards California for, uh, they used to say we were Fruit Loops, but uh, <laughs> now we're prescient, clearly. But, right. We're, we're, we're America just sooner. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gary, thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.